All right, let's go ahead and get started. My name is Jacob Elwert. I'm one of the pastors here at Intercity Baptist Church. I uh, oversee discipleship and counseling, and I also teach biblical counseling at our seminary across the street. And um, we just started a counseling center about a year and a half ago. I'm the director of the counseling center as well. We have eight counselors. Um, yeah, we got a couple more that we're training and getting ready to to, to get in, uh, into the mix as well. So, um, if you are certified with ACBC, uh, this session will count for two CEUs for your um, for your requirements. So, continuing education credits. Uh, if you're not certified with ACBC and you like to pursue counseling, I think um, Ben might mention something something like about this in the in the main session, but. Uh, we'd love to help you get certified. Our seminary is a certified training center, so we're able to do um, the training that's required for ACBC certification, as well as uh, the helping you through the exams, and then also supervising um, the counseling part of it. I'm a fellow with ACBC as well, so I, I supervise counseling uh, counselors as they go through that part of the process. But what I'd like to do uh, for today is to motivate you and remind you about the power of the scriptures. And so a lot of what you'll hear perhaps is going to be a, um, just review and a reminder and hopefully just like a good coach, just say, keep on doing what you're doing and um, see the value of, of this. But sometimes it's easy in life to, to get distracted by the things that are out there. And so one of the challenges that, that comes up, one of the competitors, we could say, to, re to working through human problems has been psychology. So this is one of the first things that came along in the last at least couple centuries. It used to be that for, for big problems prior to psychology, people would go to their pastors for, for help. Pastors used to be called physicians of the soul. That's how the, uh, the Puritans would describe uh, pastors during their time. Uh, they would use the scriptures to diagnose and prescribe what a person would do when they had various problems. But then over the last few centuries, psychology developed into a discipline that, that worked to study the mind in people in order to establish patterns and principles by which people operate. Uh, secular psychologists, they believe that the Bible is completely irrelevant to counseling. And so that humanistic sort of philosophy um, points out human needs and maybe makes helpful observations in some cases, but, but ultimately divorces those needs from our primary need, which is to have a relationship with God. And um, so much of psychology, as, as is not hard to find, they see people are good by nature, that the problem is outside of them, something in their environment, their, you know, their upbringing, or, or maybe even in their own physical body, but not in their, their soul. Um, and so the answer, they say, comes from uh, drugs or cognitive behavioral therapy or some, some other kinds of therapy. Um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, which is kind of psychiatry's Bible, um, they claim that there is causality for human problems, that, that, that they can actually take a specific problem that a person has and find the cause for it and... They, they also believe that they have the solutions for that. Really, all they have is a collection of syndromes and symptom, symptoms. Uh, they, they really can't see the whole picture. They're missing large pieces of the puzzle, in fact, the most important pieces of the puzzle. And so, um, in secular psychology, there is an attempt to help. And so, we can, we can commend them for that. They want to see people as they are. They want to help people. Uh, the, um, I think it's the third most popular major for college students in our country is psychology. And uh, so we're at a time in, in our life as a country where we're looking for answers for some of these problems that are um, very much real. And, and people want to know why they think the way that they think, why people act the way that they act. And, uh, and so psychology is seeking to, to provide those answers. Uh, around the same time of psychology, um, uh, of starting psychiatry came along. Focused on it focuses on researching, understanding, diagnosing, and treating treating diseases of the brain and disorders through medicine. So uh, it started actually with 
uh, post-Civil War with soldiers coming back with um, what was called weak nerves at the time. They were experiencing deep anxiety and uh, various addictions and explosive anger. Um, what now might be described as PTSD was at that time described as weak nerves. And so psychiatry came along to try to give some kind of medicine to help the person with those kinds of problems. And so many of these people would be institutionalized or um, heavily medicated. It's interesting that this, the term psychiatry comes from the Greek words uh, suke and, and yatros, which means soul healer. So they're actually claiming that they can heal the soul, that they have the ability to take what is a problem with our soul. Now, their, their view of the human body is almost like a mix. They, they don't tend to separate the two of them, but, but really they're, they're arguing for that kind of psychotherapy is uh, soul healing. So they're using a kind of talking, a therapy to heal a person's soul. In the 40s and 50s, psychiatry tried to advance some more. They started developing things like electroconvulsive therapy, which has now been debunked even within the field of psychiatry, and the lobotomy. Um, they attributed things like anxiety and depression to brain dysfunction, uh, and so they would treat it with shock therapy, or um, someone had uh, obscene or or, um, or or just a pattern of... Uh, of some ridiculous sexual sins, they would remove the frontal lobe of the brain. And uh, I would not recommend that you look and see how those procedures happen because I did a little bit of research on that. It's not pretty. Um, it's, it's nothing less than barbaric. One 12-year-old boy, his name was Howard Dully, had trouble with being defiant, daydreaming, and objecting to go to bed, going to bed. And so his stepmother convinced Howard's father that he needed surgery. And so she take, took him to several doctors. All of them described him as normal. Um, but then she went to Dr. Freeman, who had performed dozens of these surgeries, and she compelled him to do the surgery, um, uh, the lobotomy. And um, they said he was never quite the same uh, since then. Maybe the most, the most well-known case was John F. Kennedy's sister, Rosemary, who was diagnosed with agitated depression by the same Dr. Freeman who also performed a lobotomy on her. Um, Rosemary could no longer speak and her mental capacity reverted to that of a toddler. The, pa the parents put her in a mental institution telling people that she was retarded rather than admit admitting that the uh, operation had failed. And so this was psychiatry's attempt at seeking to solve these human problems, these problems of the soul. And um, and so they moved more to, after that, they moved more to a chemical phase using medication to try to resolve some of these problems. This is kind of where we're still at. We, I don't know that psychiatry still buys into the, um, the chemical imbalance kinds of theories that have been put out there anymore, but they still do use medication to try to alter people's behaviors and try to, to, to mute them at least. Um, but I would suggest that soul problems can only be resolved through repentance and faith, particularly when they're coming from within. There are certainly soul problems that we experience because of external things that happen to us, uh, suffering that we, we would describe as innocent. But I, I, I think psychiatry is right to be compassionate, compassionate about symptom relief. And it's right to assert that there are no simple solutions. They, try, they recognize that there are complex problems. But the problem is that, that they ignore the spiritual heart. This is the piece of the puzzle that psychology missed as well. They, they misunderstand suffering. They attribute wrong behavior to result from bad feelings. And then they attribute those bad feelings to brain chemistry. There's a lot more we could say about that. The DSM claims to have, they understand what abnormal is. And the reason they can make that claim uh, is because they believe they know what normal is. <laughs> But the problem is they don't. And that normal uh, standard, I guess you could say, is always being shifted, right? Because um, homosexuality used to be a, a, um, a disorder in the DSM in, I think, DSM-3. Now we're at DSM-5, no longer is a, dis a disorder. It's now normal. It's not something that you would be medicated for or need to adjust. You need to actually express yourself in that way, they would argue.
So uh, psychiatry doesn't answer the problem either. Uh, there's also been a search for answers to human problems through Christian integrative psychology. So what you should hear here is the integration or the combination. I've heard one person say it is syncretization or, or um, syncretism that happens between psychology and the Christian scriptures. They combine these two to develop a counseling methodology. Paulson describes integrationists as those who attempt to wed secular psychology to conservative Christianity because, he argues, that the scripture is not comp comprehensively sufficient. Um, they, they're saying that the scriptures don't have the answers for our soul problems. And so because of that, we have to go outside of the scriptures and find something else to supplement where the scriptures are weak. Um, full integrationists believe that secular psychology is, is necessary for an effective methodology. They would suggest that you can't actually do counseling well if you don't have psychology. And, and the implication there is that for 1,800 years previous in the, in the history of the church, that, that um, those, all those pastors and, and uh, Christians who were trying to help people with the problems they're facing were, were inadequate. They didn't have the tools that they needed. Um, modified integrationists deny the necessity of secular psychology. So what you find here is in this category of integrationists is, is kind of a broad range of people. You have some who will... Uh, basically say psychology is completely necessary. Uh, others who are saying, well, we can see some value in it, and so we're going to use it. Uh, and then you have some people in the middle who, who basically, um, they, they say secular psychology is not necessary as a theory, theory, but they've got a lot of good things that we can learn from. And so um, they kind of just pick and choose from both. The integrationist movement began in the 50s through the work of Clyde Naramore, who believed that both theology and secular psychology could be brought together in order to do, determine the truth and reality of what's going on in a person. Naramore popularized the idea of borrowing theories and practices from secular psychology and then weaving them into the Christian faith. And in time, false views of human nature that were borrowed from secular psychology ruled the counseling process at the expense of biblical truth. So now, the first book that I reach for when I'm trying to deal with somebody's problem is not necessarily the scriptures. And it's also not the lens through which I look at all these other resources. It just tends to be another item that I have, another book on the bookshelf of things that could help a person. Uh, one of their arguments, I, I don't think there's anything malicious in nature from integrationists that they're trying to get away from the scriptures, but they actually see the special revelation of God and the general revelation of God and say that there is value in both and would suggest that we should draw from both of those when we're trying to help people. And, uh, and, and certainly we can draw from people who have experienced common grace and there are some wise things that are being stated out there. But, but ultimately what can happen in practice is that the scriptures get set aside. So here's Stanton Jones, uh, who is a Christian psychologist, he denies that the Bible has a holistic approach to human change. He says, it is our contention that the scriptures and Christian theology do not teach a theory of personality as understood by con contemporary psychology. The scriptures teach us less than we need to know uh, to understand why individual persons have the characteristics they do, and they teach us less than we need to know in order to help many individuals move beyond the pain and confusion they feel. So he's not saying that the scriptures are false. He's not saying the scriptures don't have a purpose. He's saying for counseling purposes, they don't have the same level of help that, that contemporary psychology does. And so then in practice, um, the scriptures are, are, uh, end up being insufficient. Hebrews 4.12 certainly has something to say that, about that, right? That the scriptures are alive and active and they're able to pierce down into the innermost parts of who we are. So if you want some, something to expose what's going on in a, person heart, a person's heart, it's not going to be coming from secular psychology. They're only going to be able to reach down to, to, to a specific level or some, some level, but not to the innermost part of who a person is like the scriptures can. God's word is without flaws. It, it is what sanctifies us, and that's our goal in 
counseling. Um, I, I think I have there for you that Dale Johnson, he's the director of ACBC, he has some, some ideas for um, why, why um, secular, yeah, why, why integrationists are, is being accepted in churches today. And, um, and so I'll, I'll just leave those there for you. I won't, I won't get into them because we have a lot more that we need to cover. Um, so some of the problems with integrationism, I would say, um, first, uh, an invalid anthropology. They don't understand the nature of individuals. Um, they see humans as relatively good. So especially when you're drawing from secular psychology and you're wedding that with the scriptures, you got to be careful with how secular psychology views um, the human personality. And uh, so invalid anthropology, they, they don't recognize the possibility for change, especially for a person who's been saved by Jesus Christ. And then a sloppy epistemology, which is how do we know what is true? So let's take special revelation versus general revelation. How can we know what's true? Because we can learn a lot from general revelation, looking at the birds, looking at the stars, you know, examining things out in creation, seeing a, a human and how he thinks and operates. There's lots we can learn there. But is it authoritative like special revelation is? I mean, is my interpretation of things from a general, general revelation perspective, is that, is that authoritative? I have to be careful with that. And that's why I would say a, a sloppy epistemology Here's how um, David Paulson describes it. It's kind of a longer quote, but I think it's really helpful to provide for us a kind of framework for how we should think about information when it comes to helping people. He says, biblical counselors who fail to think through carefully the nature of biblical epistemology, the way that we know what is true, runs the danger of acting as if scripture were exhaustive rather than comprehensive. So one of the desires we might have is I wish that the scriptures would say more about this specific problem that I'm dealing with. You know, if God wanted to, he could have developed a search engine that we could just type in questions and he could give us a list of answers. But God gave us everything he wanted us to know about every single issue that we're going to come across. And that's why we say that the scriptures are sufficient, not that they're completely exhaustive or comprehensive, but they address all the issues that God wanted us to know. So everything he wanted us to know about marriage conflict, he's written it down. And, and we don't have to go outside of that. And that's where integrationists say, well, there's more we could gather from other people. He says, as if scripture were an encyclopedic catalog of all significant facts, rather than God's revelation of the crucial ones, richly illustrated that yield a worldview sufficient to interpret whatever other facts we encounter, as if scripture were the whole bag of marbles rather than the eyeglasses through which we interpret all the marbles. As if our current grasp of scripture and people were triumphant and final, integrationists view scripture as a small bag of marbles and psychology as a large bag of marbles. Um, so the logic of an integrationist epistemology is this. Put the two bags together. So you kind of just throw them out all on the table and then you immediately weed out the ones that are really bad. Like, okay, that's clearly against the scriptures. And then what you have left is more marbles. And, and, but it's easy, he says, for would-be biblical counselors to view the scripture as simply a huge bag of marbles. The epistemological position differs from the epistemology of integrationists only in quantity, not in quality. And it leads to either absurd forms of proof, proof texting or to substituting pat answers for careful pastoral wisdom or to capitulating to integrationism in the, woke, in the wake of counseling failures. And so we might think maybe the Bible doesn't contain all the marbles after all, or maybe it's a useful resource for acquiring marbles among many other sources. And he's saying that's the wrong sort of analogy that we should have. It's not that we put the scripture alongside of all this other truth and then try to think about, okay, now we, now we have lots to choose from, but rather the glasses through which we examine all of the truth that we look at. That this is the standard by which we examine everything. So is there anything helpful in psychology? Absolutely. There are helpful things because of common grace. God allows some people to make wise observations. But we can't just, we can't just um, almost like mindlessly 
put that along the side of the scripture as if it has equal authority when the scriptures always have authority and it's going to determine whether or not this other piece of information is valid or not. So the need for systematic theology and a proper hermeneutic is critical for counseling, a proper way to understand the scriptures. If you don't understand the nature of scripture, what it was intended for and how it was designed, you're prone to drift towards integrationist perspective. Paulson suggests that, this is the next quotation there in your notes. Most integrationists were once conservative Bible Christians. Their bag of marbles epistemology came in for rude shocks during their higher education or when they struggled with personal problems or the problems of counselees. Their suddenly insufficient Bible yielded to seemingly greater secular wisdom. It's like, well, this scripture doesn't have the answer for what I'm looking for, so I need to go outside, find it somewhere else. The same dynamic will continue to occur among biblical counselors unless we accurately define the meaning of scripture's sufficiency. Is the Bible a bag of marbles or is it the all-sufficient eyeglasses of truth which, with lots of illustrative marbles by which God corrects our sin-tainted vision? So this is a big part of biblical counseling. We, we don't just say there's nothing else but the Bible, you know, no creed but the Bible type of thing. Um, but the Bible is our source. It is the, the first source, the primary source with, to which we go. And it is the source by which we evaluate all others. And if we don't understand the nature of truth from the scriptures, then we're going to put some of these things in the same category as the scriptures. And before long, the scriptures end up taking um, a back seat. So we could also talk about uh, some other problems. Uh, I would suggest that also there that integrationists tends to have a wrong means. Um, they, they, they don't seem to have the, um, the goal of, of sanctification. They, Christian integrationists tend to misuse the scriptures, um, and sometimes it, that's what Paulson was referring to there, leads to proof texting. Now I just like, well, I want to make it biblical, so let me just find a text that proves my point, rather than saying, no, this is the purpose of the text, let me draw that out and then apply it to that person's life. And then invalid results. The goal of a Christian integrationist is not the same goal as a biblical counselor. I would suggest a biblical counselor's goal is spiritual change. It's sanctification. Um, uh, sometimes what can happen in integrationists, and there is a broad spectrum there in integrationism, so I want to be careful there because there probably are some people that would be closer to us who would seek that as a goal. But what I've found in, in just reading some of these people, their goal is more behavioral change, um, transformation in that way, like, like you, your problem's gone away or it's resolved in some way, rather than, you know, in biblical counseling, this sounds a little cold, but sometimes the problem doesn't go away. It, it, but we can actually respond to it in a better way than we did before, even if the problem doesn't go away. So my goal when I start a, session, a case is not to, to like, I want to get your problem solved. If I can, I'd love to do that, if, especially, you know, with, with the scriptures as my help. And, and as we're going to see in, in um, Psalm 19, I think, I think the scriptures do have help in that way. But that's not always the case. I'm meeting with a guy right now. Not right now. Okay. Uh, he like, well, he's got it on a video or something, talking to this guy. Um, I'm meeting with a guy who, um, you know, has had some marital conflicts and he's... Uh, He's really struggling there, and he was not a Christian when he came. He's recently gotten saved after a lot of um, a lot of different influences outside of me. I'm thankful for that. And one of the things that I told him recently is that your marital conflict might not get better uh, because of you coming to Christ, because she's not a believer. Uh, it actually might get worse. And I haven't taken her to the passage to show you know we have to love Jesus more than we love our spouse type of thing, but. Um, but it seems to be genuine. seems like this guy really has made a turn. And so ultimately our goal is not changing the circumstances, getting you out of your problems, or uh, the main goal is to get you to become more like Christ than when you started and hopefully also resolve the problem uh, if, God, if God desires. So secular psychology does have a functional role in that it, um, it, it provides some kind of illustrative and provocative role for us. Um, so it can, it can point us back to the scriptures, maybe help us to dig deeper. But ultimately, it's not 
necessary uh, for biblical counseling, I would suggest. So biblical counseling uh, came along in the 70s. And, um, you know, as I mentioned before, psychology came along. There was um, that people would go to their, their pastors for help. And uh, the illustration that comes to mind is, is um, Little House on the Prairie, you know, Rever- Reverend Alden. He was the guy that you, when you had problems, you'd go to him. Um, can tell I have daughters or maybe I'm just, I have a lot of free time or something, but no, I have daughters. Um, and so, um, so biblical counseling, I wouldn't say necessarily biblical counseling is like, um, it's always been here. It is a brand new kind of thing from the seventies, but we don't have to think like brand new being bad. I think it was a necessary response to these churches who are starting to basically subcontract out the work that they were responsible to do to some of these secular professionals who could handle them. And biblical counseling came along and said, no, this ought to be back inside the local church underneath the authority of a pastor. Um, We need to keep the scriptures at the center of what we're doing. Um, And so I think that was a good thing. Uh, Biblical counseling, we could describe very simply as intensive discipleship. So we're just trying to help people become more like Christ if a person's not a believer, we want to see them come to Christ. We want to win them to Christ. Thankful for our um, counseling center uh, here, Delta Biblical Counseling Center. Uh, we, we state right up front in, in the paperwork that they have to fill out that we are going to help you from the Christian scriptures. So we start out right at the beginning, um, not ashamed to share with them the gospel. So we, we do get a, share, a, a good number of unbelievers that come our way. And so we can start that way. We don't have to like, I hope they ask me about it at some point, or I hope we eventually can get to this, but we can actually share the gospel with them from the beginning. Um, all right, let's get to sermon, uh, sermon. Let's get to the sermon part. Psalm, in, Psalm 19, uh, let me invite you to turn in your text there because I want to just encourage you with the value of the scripture and the power of the word and uh, then think about some implications as to how that might look when we uh, go to counsel someone. And I guess I should see what time we get done here. 11.15, does that sound right? Okay, we'll go with that. Um, Two critical components to counseling are the word and prayer. And uh, our focus this morning is going to be on the Word. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was asked one time, what's more important, the Bible or prayer? And he said, well, which, more, which is more important, breathing in or breathing out? Um, we need both of them. We need the Scriptures and we need prayer. And so um, I want to encourage people. I, I need to be regular, re- regularly reminded of the importance of these things. And so I, I thought it would be helpful just to talk about the the importance of the the scriptures. And in this session, I want to remind you of the power of the word. And by it, I want to strengthen your resolve to search for the scriptures. Search after the scriptures as you would for hidden treasures. Um, Again, I think our problem when we come to try to help people is not so much, I don't want to help this person or I don't want to put in the work. But it can be that I, I want to do this, but someone else has already had to say something about it rather than, well, yeah, someone has said something about it. Let's go and find the answers here. Uh, I, I'm not opposed to external resources. Lots of good books downstairs in the books in the bookstore and lots of good biblical counseling resources that you can draw from. But but I think um, I think the scriptures, we, we don't want to lose that discipline of of each of us going and doing the work. So let me read the text for us and then we'll um, look at it together. This is uh, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. And he goes on and um, really prays a prayer that we sang earlier, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. 
oh, oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So what would happen if God were silent? What would life be like if God were silent? So he's still the creator. He still creates us. He puts us on the earth, but let's say he's completely silent. Well, in one sense, we, um, if, if he were silent before we were created, we wouldn't be created because he, he spoke us into existence. But if, if God had not spoken, we wouldn't know what it takes to come to him. We wouldn't know about our Savior. We would remain in our trespasses and sins. We would wander off into darkness. And, and I think this is the worst kind of judgment that we can experience in this lifetime is God's silence. Um, not God coming and, you know, causing us to be in an accident or taking our health or something. The worst judgment that God could do to us is to let us go on into our sins, Romans chapter 1, to, to enjoy the lust that we, we want to go after. But for God to speak is for God to move us in, a, in the right direction. And so um, God, God is, is so kind to speak to us. And obviously, one of the clear ways that he has spoken to us is through his word. Hebrews chapter 1 begins with God has spoken in many times in many ways. Um, and now he's spoken to us through his son. Sometimes in the prophets, dreams, visions, but now he's spoken to us through his son. And that speaking to his son is recorded for us. This is the, the representation of who God is. We, it's interesting when you're reading through the prophets. So if you get there in your Bible reading, sometimes it's, it's hard to see the difference between when God's speaking and when his word, when his prophet is speaking. It's almost like they're, they're, they're the same. And in a similar way, we look at the scriptures and all of it is from God. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish. Is this like the author? Sometimes we get you know, too much into the details and like, is this the author? What is this his own thought? This is God's word. So when God is silent, we have death and decay. We go to the grave in our trespasses and sins. We, we either don't exist because God never created us or we are headed on a pathway towards destruction. But notice what happens when God speaks. These first phrases in verses seven through nine all refer to the word of God. So these are the, the nature of God's teachings. It's talking about the law of God, the testimony of God, the precepts. And this is, remember, this is poetry. He, if he wanted to, he could say, let me tell you what the word of God is. And then it, I'll tell you what it, it is. It's perfect, sure, right, pure, uh, clean, and true. He could have done that. Um, but instead, it's poetry. So he's giving a lot of different words to describe the same thing, which is the word of God. And then he describes what it is. This is the nature of God's teaching or the value of, God, uh, of God's teaching. It's perfect. It's in verse 7. It's sure. It's reliable. It's upright. It's exactly correct. It's pure. It's clean. It's not corrupt or unclean. It's not going to lead you to evil. Um, there is a sense in counseling when you're helping people that sometimes you, you kind of feel overwhelmed. Like, how can I possibly help them? And, and there's, there, there's a sense in which uh, you give them the scriptures and you can, almost can't mess up, right? Obviously, we can say the wrong kinds of things or focus on the wrong kinds of things, but, but the scriptures have the power to, to, uh, to do things. And we're going to get to that here at the end of each line. Notice the results of God's teaching. We can kind of look at all the results here. First, it restores the soul. It, this is a word for reviving or refreshing or converting as the King James uses. It, it's hard to know if, if um, uh, uh, what, what exactly he's saying here, but it means that, that the word gives life. It, it, it restores a person who was, was uh, heading off on a wrong path that actually comes from a Hebrew word that means to return. It returns the soul. It restores the person to where they ought to be. So do you have people in your life that you're working with and you want to see them revived? They're a little bit uh, lackadaisical. They're a little bit slothful. You want to see them come to life? Well, the word of God is the answer. It's what's going to bring them life. It only happens when the sun of God's word shines on them. They need to be under the word. Um, so do you know of people who are fading away, walking away into darkness. They need to be revived by the preaching of the word, the reading of the word. Or maybe you are at a season of life where you're starting to get slothful, like when you're driving at 3 a.m. and you're just like, I need to sleep. Well, now's not the time to sleep. We need to be awake. We need to be alert. We need 
life. We need to have something returned to us. Some of us use ice chips or candy or an open window or, you know, the air on all the way or whatever. But we need to be alive. We need to be revived. And the scriptures are the things that, that is the thing that brings life to your slothful soul. Uh, it also makes wise the simple, the end of the next line. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and he will give it liberally, James 1. Well, how does he do that? Does he speak to us in a still small voice? Does he write a message in the clouds? Does he send us a message through email? No, he does it through his word. The answer to that prayer is right here in the scriptures and we need to seek for it. The simple are made wise under the teaching of God's word. The simple uh, are also referred to as naive in Proverbs where Proverbs 14 says the simple believe everything. And, you know, you ever been at those times in life where you're kind of like tossed here and there by this idea, the latest preacher kind of comes up with this idea and then you're like, oh, that sounds good over here. And then, oh, that can't be right because of this. You want to be grounded and settled and firm. Well, the scriptures make wise those who are simple. Um, it also rejoices the heart, verse 8. So are you working with someone who's sorrowful because of the struggles of life, frustrated, ungrateful? Well, the, the word brings joy. You've experienced this yourself, I'm sure, that as you've feasted on it, that the word has given you joy, uh, an abiding confidence that works. It kind of stands above the, the circumstances that kind of are bringing us down. It also enlightens the eyes at the end of verse 8. This word enlightened is the same word in 1 Samuel 14, 27. You've probably heard this before. Jonathan dipped his staff in the honey and touched his finger to the end of the staff, brought it to his mouth, and his eyes were enlightened. They were brightened. So I think this is the idea of encouragement. It gives that life, that's that, that dragging kind of nature that we can have at times. We need to be brightened up, encouraged. The scriptures do that. They also endure forever. Uh, lots of things come and go in our society, but not God's word. At the end of verse 9, they're righteous altogether. Um, I, I think the idea here is, since all these other ones are what the word does, I think this is the idea of not that they are righteous, but they bring righteousness to us. It accomplishes righteousness in us. And so this is the transforming power of the word. The word is like the sun that we can't physically live without. It sustains our life. We can't live spiritually without the word of God. Um, and so, do you believe that? Um, do you practice that? Is that something that, that you live by? The, the next couple of verses show the value or the joy of knowing and pursuing God's word, that it is, um, it's like gold. It's like fine gold, honey, honeycomb, and a great reward. So those, all those things are all positive things. You take the word of God, you, you apply it to your life, you apply it to other people's lives, then uh, you're going to find great reward. And then this desired effect is purity in verses 12 and 14, and then also a protection from sins. So let's talk about when God speaks. I'm going to run through these fairly quickly, but just want to remind you of the great power that the word of God, when God is silent, things are terrible. You know, we, we move on into, towards destruction, but when God speaks, the world comes into existence, Genesis chapter 1. And all things came into being, John 1, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. When God speaks, the, the dead are raised to life. Jesus says to Lazarus there in John eleven forty three, Lazarus, come forth. He gives him life through his words. When God speaks, the sick are made well. Jesus to the woman with the hemorrhage who touched his cloak. He says, daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has made you well. And immediately the woman was healed. When God speaks, the deaf hear. This is Mark 7. Jesus led away from the crowd so they could be alone. He put his fingers in the man's ear and spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephetha, which means be open. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Demons are cast out. 
Jesus, Mark 9, saw a crowd that was rapidly gathering and he rebuked the unclean spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you come out of him and don't enter him again. After crying out, he threw him into terrible convulsions and it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. The lame walk. When God speaks, the blind see. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked in Mark 10. My rabbi, the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has healed you. Instantly the man could see. No other ritual is needed. No other source. The woman with the hemorrhage is a good example. She sought all the doctors. She used all of her money and she was no better off. She was actually worse than she was before. And yet she comes and is healed by Jesus. When God speaks, the enemy is reconciled. The slave is ransomed. The debtor is pardoned. The sinner is forgiven. The lost is found. The person is made into a new creation. The spiritually dead are raised to life. You know what your counselee needs? person that you're trying to disciple, they need faith. They need confidence that God is true and that he should be trusted. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The reason that person came to Christ in the first place is because God spoke and he brought them to life through the word. And the reason that they're going to stay in the faith is because of the word of God. They need that. When God speaks, dead bones are brought to life. Ezekiel 37 is a great picture of that when Ezekiel preaches to the, to, the, uh, to the morgue, essentially. When God speaks, God accomplishes what he wants. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, the rain and snow come down from heaven and stay on the ground. They water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It's the same for my word. When it's sent out, it will always produce fruit. It will accomplish what I want. I will prosper everywhere I send it. You don't have that promise for secular psychology and all the, the tips and tricks that you can learn from them. You don't have that promise, but you do for the word that when you give them the scriptures, it will accomplish what God wanted it to accomplish in them. Now, that may be a hardening, which is hard. I mean, obviously, in the context, Isaiah, you are to go in chapter six to a people who are ever hearing but never uh, never understanding and a, a person of people who are always seeing but never perceiving and so in some cases when you give the word to people they might not respond the way you want to but it accomplishes exactly what god wants just like when the snow falls from heaven or the rain from the sky when god speaks the heart is exposed this is hebrews 4 12 the word exposes our innermost thoughts and desires when God speaks, the Christian is sustained. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The physical needs of a person are important, and you should take them into consideration when you're working with people. But there's something more important. I remember Mark Minnick uh, said once, we can have meaningful existence apart from physical food, but we can't have meaningful existence apart from God's word. You can have someone on their deathbed who can have a very meaningful existence without having any food for weeks, but they can't have it apart from God's word. And that's what your counselee needs. That's what the person that you're discipling needs. When God speaks, the church is born. Um, the church is born. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. In history, when God speaks the the church is purified think of the effects of the printing press on the people of the 1500s that allowed the dissemination of the word to, of god to go to more and more people so that now they didn't have to uh learn from the interpretation of what the pope had to say or the or the uh priest had to say but rather they could they could understand it for themselves i love this quotation from luther he says while i slept the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. What do you suppose is Satan's thought when one tries to do the things by kicking up a row? He sits back in hell and thinks, oh, what a fine game the poor fools are, are up to now. But when we spread the word alone and let it alone do the work, that distresses him for it is almighty and takes captive the hearts, and when the hearts are captured, the work will fall of itself. This is how I feel in counseling so much. 
what did I do? I just gave him the scriptures and then I went to sleep. And, and in the background, God's working through them. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm trying to do this skillfully. I'm not just saying, hey, let's take you know, these two verses and call me in the morning type thing. But, but it's the word that did the work. When God speaks, the guilty are forgiven. When God speaks, the shameful sinners are welcomed home like the prodigal son. Let's bring him a robe and a ring and let's have a party. When God speaks, the storm is calmed. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and waves and said, silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. When God speaks, the Christian has matured. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so you're able to add to your faith all these virtues and then finally love. And the more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you'll be in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their former sins. When God speaks, life is made sweet. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb, verse 10 says. And by them your servant is warned, and when you keep them, there is great reward, verse 11. Psalm 119, 103. How sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. When God speaks, my path is given light. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. When God speaks, all heaven and earth bow down. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. When God speaks, his sheep listen and follow. John 10 says, I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep recognize his voice and they come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And after he's gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They'll run from him because they don't know his voice. Here's all you're doing for them is you're making the sound of the shepherd's voice be like a megaphone in the person that you're working with's ear. You want them to listen again to the shepherd's voice because they'll follow him. If they're a Christian, they're going to follow. When God speaks, we are stabilized. Those who walk in wisdom, delight in the law of the Lord, they meditate on it day and night. They're like trees planted by the river of water. They're not swayed by every wind of wave, or, and wave of doctrine because God is speaking to us as we speak to each other the truth in love, Ephesians 4. When God speaks, believers are sanctified. Sanctify them by your truth, Jesus says. Your word is truth. When God speaks, the man of God is made competent for every good work. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. You want them to be involved in good works? Well, give them the scriptures. When God speaks, things come to pass. The former things I declared of old, Isaiah 48, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. When God speaks, his word cannot be overpowered. It cannot be stopped. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. All of the forces of Satan that are against the person that you're working with, trying to get them to turn away, don't have anything. They can't hold a candle to the power that comes through the word. God's word is our necessary food and necessary for the people that we're working with and we need to help them feast on it. So I would suggest that it starts with you. Don't just use the scriptures as a tool to help someone else. First, immerse yourself in the scripture because you'll be a better helper. The more that you know the scriptures, the more you can help people. The more you work to apply those things to your lives, to your personal life, you'll be able to help other people. This is how God has helped me. And you can use those principles in that way. There's, there's much more consistency and authority um, uh, that you can speak with. Sit at the feet of Jesus like Mary. Turn over to Hebrews chapter, th uh, chapter 3. And I um, just want to show you this text and then uh, we'll wrap it up here. Hebrews chapter 3. Just as... Uh, 
another reminder of the great work that God is doing. Notice what the author of Hebrews, pastor of the church there, saying in verse 7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So he goes on to quote from Psalm 95. Notice that the notice the tense of that verb in verse 7. Just as the Holy Spirit said, just as he said one time long ago when he was talking through the, the psalmist. No, as he says. He is presently speaking. So here, here's the power that we have. When we speak on behalf of God, there is authority because God is still speaking. It's not a dead, antiquated book that was used for people a long time ago in various ways, but it's something that's alive and God is still speaking. We have this great treasure in the word of God. And so we should, like Proverbs 2 calls us to do, search for the scriptures, use it as our primary source from which we're going to understand what life is about, what's going on in the human heart. The, the, the heart of a man is like a deep water, Proverbs 20 says, but a man of understanding draws it out. And the scriptures are able to help us do that because the scriptures see into the soul. Sometimes we don't use the scriptures um, like we should because we don't trust God. Sometimes it's because we don't value his word or sometimes it's because we value other things more than God. And the point is, is that our responsibility is to go after the scriptures, just like if you had hidden treasure in your backyard and a map for it, you wouldn't be sitting here probably right now. You'd be going after it. Well, you have a treasure in front of you. And our job is to keep mining it, find out what is in there, what kinds of texts of scripture speak to this person's issue or to my issue that I'm work, working with. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. No one who has put their confidence in God has ever been disappointed, Romans chapter 9 says. And so we can... We can unashamedly take them to the very source from which they will experience a restoration of life. This is where our hope lies. And so I, I don't imagine any of this is brand new. Like, wow, that was the first time, time I ever heard that. But, but it, it ought to serve as a, a reminder for us that whatever was written before in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And if we're not helping people with giving them hope about what God can do for their problems, we're not helping people. And the scriptures have that power to give that kind of hope. And so let me commend um, that discipline and that kind of purpose to you as you work with people. Let me pray, and then if you'd like to ask any questions, you're welcome to do that. Lord, thank you so much for the power of your word. Thank you for causing uh, your word to come alive in us, that someone was faithful and, and, and shared the word with us, and it was by your word that, that we experienced spiritual life, and by it we grow. And uh, Lord, we need it every day. So please give us strength to, to mine it and understand it as, as you meant it to be understood, and then to seek to apply it to our lives and the, to the lives of others. Equip us for this task, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.